read with me, please. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17, and then we're going to skip down to chapter 3 and we're read verses 1 through 5. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Where is Malachi in the history of the scripture? Just very quickly. The Bible starts in the book of Genesis with the creation of the universe. Quite quickly, mankind falls through rebellion and sin. And uh, if we think we would have done it differently in the Garden of Eden, we're wrong. Uh, we rebelled against God, and we're a party to the rebellion against God. And then the story of the Old Testament is the story of God bringing together for himself a people, a people through whom he would bring the Messiah. Where does Malachi fit in that story? Malachi is at the very end of the Old Testament. In fact, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, we've already had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, we have already uh, had Joshua invade and conquer the promised land. We've already had David and Solomon and all the kings that have come after David and Solomon, both in Judah and Israel. Uh, several hundred years before uh, Malachi, they had already fallen apart. And it, uh, the people of Israel were conquered by the Assyrians, and the people of Judah had been conquered and taken captive by the Babylonians. Malachi then was written to a group of people who had finally, after captivity in Babylon, had made their way back to the promised land. Maybe just four or five hundred years before Christ, these people had come back and they had even rebuilt the temple, uh, such as it was, a very humble and modest temple, and they were trying to worship and reconnect with God, but unfortunately things weren't going well. They were trying to worship God and they were trying to seek the Lord, but they expected everything to go easily uh, once they came back to the land and things weren't going easily. And quickly they were beginning to wander away from their devotion to the Lord. And so Malachi forces us to ask this question, what does it look like to worship God in faith, uh, especially in times where things aren't going uh, the way we had uh, planned? And, and what we assume by worship is that God is worthy of being worshipped. That God is God, and He is worthy of worship, not as defined by the circumstances we find ourselves in, 
But God is worthy of worship as defined by who he is, that his very nature, that his very being, that him being God and uh, God alone makes him worthy of our worship. And uh, that is difficult to do in various times. In, in times of difficulty and stress, worship uh, can be difficult. But that's what the people of Malachi were being forced to confront. What does it mean to worship God only because he is worthy? And what are some of the, the pitfalls to this? So the title of our message today from uh, Exodus 2.17 through uh, 3.5 is The Goodness of God. The goodness of God. Because if we're going to say God is worthy of being worshipped all the time, regardless of the situations, what are those things that make him worthy of worship? And one of those things, there are many things that make him worthy of worship, but one of those things in particular we're going to focus on this morning is God's goodness. God is good. Uh, God is kind and defined. His very nature is a nature of being good. And when we think of God's nature of goodness, we have to understand God's nature differently than we understand our own nature. Uh, so you might be a person who considers yourself by nature uh, disciplined. Uh, you do things when they ought to be done in the way they, they ought to be done. But the question you might ask yourself if you're a disciplined person in that way, are you always disciplined? Well, no. Even the most disciplined among us will from time to time decide, you know what, I'm not going to do it. I don't feel like getting up off the couch. The lawn isn't growing that much. It's still kind of cold outside. I don't need to mow it this weekend. And, and so even the most disciplined person will sometimes not be disciplined. Even the most loving person will occasionally not be loving. Uh, think of the kindest person you know. And if you know them well, even if they're the kindest person you know, if you've known them long enough, you know from time to time they have the ability to not be kind. So that's the nature of man. God's nature is very different from ours. God is always the way he is. By his very nature, he is good. By his very nature, he expresses goodness. He is not ever not good. That's like a triple negative. I don't even know what I just said, but we can say it this way. He is always good. God always acts every moment of his existence completely consistent with his nature. There's never a time where he sort of fudges it a little bit. God is always true to his nature. And one of the uh, hallmark characteristics of God is his goodness. So the question is that we should ask ourselves, and we're going to try and answer this question through the passage today, is how does his goodness, how does his nature of being good lead us to worship even during uh, times that are hard? How does his goodness lead us to worship even during times that are hard, which we may be thinking about now in the way our life has changed in the last uh, few weeks or months? So the goodness of uh, God. Uh, so let's think about it this way. We've all had this experience from one time or the other where uh, we have purchased a gift for a loved one or for a friend, and we have given the gift to them, say, hey, I got this gift for you for your birthday or for an anniversary or something, and you give them the gift and they open it up and, and they're you know, a little bit less enthusiastic about the gift than you expected them to be. You were so excited about it, and now uh, seeing on the fa their face a bit of their uh, disappointment at receiving this particular gift, you start listing all the uh, bells and whistles and features of the gift to try and sell it to them. No, you're going to love this. 
Uh, right now, sure, it doesn't seem like much. And we've all had that experience where uh, we give somebody something and they're like, well, yeah, this is great. And they're trying to be polite. Oh, thank you. That's really nice of you. I don't know what it is, but uh, thank you for that. And uh, this is what is going on uh, with the people of God. God has given them the, this great gift. Two things in this context. He has given them the gift of his mercy of being able to go back to their land and to worship him in their land. And he has given them the opportunity in this time in history to worship him as the people of God. And now that the people of God are back in their land, and now that they are worshiping God, things aren't going the way they thought they should go, and they are less enthusiastic than they should have been about this gift that God had given them. Let's read again uh, ex- uh, excuse me, Malachi uh, chapter 2, verse 17. Here's what it says. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You have wearied the Lord with your words, the prophet is telling the people of Israel. And, And they're saying, well, how have we wearied God? And here's what they were saying to God. He said, They were saying essentially to God, everyone who does evil, you bless. And the people who do good, you bring harm. Not only that, they're saying, where is God's justice in this moment? God seems absent. God seems on vacation. Does he not care about us in this situation? And, And they're accusing God of not being good. And the prophet is coming to them and saying, you have wearied the Lord with your word. So what's the first thing to take away from this? The goodness of God in this moment is shown in God's restraint. The goodness of God is shown in God's restraint. Pay attention. Look at it. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. As they formed these words of complaint to God, who provided to them the mouth and the breath to be able to form these words of complaint to God? Who who gave them the ability to speak? Who gave them the breath to breathe and the the vocal cords in the mouth? And the answer is, if we look at uh, any of a number of Psalms, God is the one who gives us those things. So God, in his restraint and by his grace and mercy, allowed these to come with this false accusation. The fact that they had breath to utter a complaint shows us to some degree God's restraint. You say, well, that doesn't seem very restrained. Well, think of it this way. Say you go to a restaurant. Of course, uh, you couldn't do that now. But maybe someday, once again, you'll be able to go to a restaurant. And you sit down, and you don't like anything about the restaurant. You don't like the lighting. You don't like the decor. The food is terrible. Uh, and you, you don't like anything about the restaurant. And the, the owner of the restaurant comes over to you and says, what do you think? You say, well, this place is terrible. I'm, gonna, I'm never going to come back again. In fact... I am going to write a sternly worded review on Yelp that's going to ruin your reputation. It's going to drag your rating down several stars on Yelp. And the owner says, oh, okay, well, what are you going to do? And then the the customer says to the owner, can I borrow your cell phone in order to write my complaint? And none of us, the owner would say, listen, you want to write a complaint, you get your own phone. But the, the restraint of God here is he's the one handing them the cell phone. He said, yeah, go ahead and make your complaint. Knock yourself out. He's not saying their complaint is right, but God in his restraint is allowing their complaint to come up to them, come up to him. But the prophet is going to make very, very clear 
God's goodness and His mercy is even shown in His restraint in this moment. They might have even said, listen, we're the prayers. We are coming to God in prayer. But they are not coming to God with complaints or what we might call laments. They are coming to God with accusations. They are not coming to God saying, God, we know the kind of God you are, and we know your goodness and kindness and mercy, and God, we know you hear us, so God, deliver us from this trial. That's not what they were doing. They were coming to God and saying, God, you are not a good God. In fact, it says, where is the God of justice? See, that's a contradiction. A God of justice would never be absent. And the question itself reveals they don't believe God is just. And God's goodness is shown in that he restrains and he doesn't bring judgment on them. Instead, he brings the prophet to them to try and help them see things uh, differently. Look at the first sentence again of verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. So we might ask ourselves uh, this question. Does God have to allow himself to be wearied with the accusations of the folks in Israel at this time? And the answer is no, he doesn't. He is God of the universe. He is not required to listen to their accusations. He is not required to let the words of accusation pile up on his shoulders. He is not required to listen to their endless accusations of, God, you are not just. God, you are not good. God, you like people who are evil, and you dislike people who are good. He didn't have to bear the burden of these words, but in his grace and his restraint, awaiting a faithful response from his people, he lets the words and accusations pile up. Allowing time for the grace and mercy of God, he waits that maybe they would respond in repentance and recognize God's goodness and God's justice. Now, some of us are, are thinking, listen, I've read the Psalms, and, and the psalmist and, and Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations, they, they accuse God of a lot of things. So I want to draw a distinction here between an accusation and a lament. In the Scripture, we see laments a lot, and, and the laments are fantastic to read, especially if you're going through a very difficult time. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing, actually, to read that uh, the authors of Scripture by the Holy Spirit would give voice to the pain we feel in our heart. But there's a difference between a lament and a, a complaint that is an accusation. A lament is honest, honest about what is, but continues to recognize what God is like. So a lament says, life is hard, life is terrible. Here are the facts of the situation, and God, I'm going to give you the details of the facts of why right now my life is really, really hard. But in my heart, as an act of worship, even in that pain and that difficulty, lament still recognizes God's goodness, His holiness, and in fact brings those laments to God and says, God, I know what you're like. Please intervene. God, by your mercy and grace, would you change these things if it is according to your will? So a lament is actually a, a humble act of worship where we recognize goodness in God, we recognize God's power, but we also have to call a spade a spade. The world is broken. The world is uh, suffering of an, under the effects of our rebellion and sin, and we yearn for home. And God loves to hear those laments. God enjoys hearing his people coming to him with the pain and burden of their heart. But a lament also comes and says, but God, you are God, 
And you are still worthy of my worship, even in the dark night of the soul, as one author calls it. So the goodness of God is shown in his restraint. Now, I'm sure all of us at some time in our life have had a prayer. We might, we might not have even given up words. It might have just been an attitude in our heart. That was a prayer that accuses God. And the goodness of God is shown in how his mercy pours out on us, even in those moments of bitterness and hard-heartedness. He is allowing his Holy Spirit to move in us that our hearts will yield to him, that even in times of difficulty, we can come to him in honesty and yet at the same time come to him with worship. Now, in the Bible, who is the accuser? Well, the accuser is Satan himself. Satan is the one who accuses. And we know uh, Satan accuses both God and man. The Bible makes it quite clear that Satan goes before God and he brings accusation all the time. He brings accusations on the believers. So Satan will go before God and he's going to give God a laundry list of all the bad things you have done in the last week. And all of those things are going to be accurate. But thankfully, according to the book of Hebrews, you have the Son of God, Jesus himself, who stands next to the Father and says, your accusations are going nowhere, I've paid for that sin. Well, Satan also accuses God to us. Satan comes to us and whispers in our ear, and he accuses God and says, listen, is God really good? Uh, Another way it's said in the book of Genesis, did God really say? Boy, it sure doesn't seem like God has your best interest in mind. If God was good, then he certainly would not have allowed things to get this bad. Those are the kinds of accusations that the devil will bring into our minds regarding God. We then can turn that around and go to the Lord with worshipful lament, where we understand what is and come to God with the pain and hardship, the hardship we face. The question comes from what's going on in our heart. In our heart, are we accusing God, or in our heart, do we recognize God's goodness uh, and grace? The devil will try to use trouble to get us to join him in accusing God. But what we can do is turn that on its head and take trouble as an act of worship and come to God with lament and worship even during times of difficulty. The goodness of God is in fact shown even in his restraint to allow us the tension of working through lament uh, and accusation. Okay, let's continue on uh, into the next verse in chapter 3, verse 1. The goodness of God is shown in grace. So the question is, how does God, who is holy and just, show restraint? Because as we said earlier, God is 100% always true to his nature. And since God is just, and God is holy, and God is righteous, how can he abide, even for the shortest period of time, any rebellion? If God is completely true to his nature, shouldn't God immediately judge any sin instantly? Shouldn't any sinner be immediately smote and and wiped out? How can God allow restraint? Isn't he compromising? And the answer is, uh, fundamental to his nature is also his grace and his mercy. Let's read again verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, 1 through 4 of Malachi Chapter 3, the goodness of God shown in grace. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, 
Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. The goodness of God shown in grace. So here these people are accusing God of not being just, not being good, not being kind, and his response is, behold, I'm going to send my messenger to you. I'm going to send my messenger to you, and he's going to pave the way for me to come. Uh, Another restaurant illustration to kind of show us what God's grace is like here. Say you're sitting in a restaurant. Again, most of us have completely forgotten what this is like, but imagine someday we're once again sitting in a restaurant, and you're enjoying your meal, you've ordered your food, but around you is pandemonium. Some people are doing as you do. They're ordering their meal and they're paying for their meal. Other people are just walking into the restaurant, stealing food and leaving. Some are walking into the restaurant and actually taking tables and chairs. Uh, Others are coming in and conducting illegal activity, dealing drugs and the sort, right from out of the restaurant. And you're sitting there and you go to the manager and you say, what's going on here? This is this place is a, a, a in pandemonium. It's a it's a zoo. It's out of control. You got to get this place under control. Uh, we need to call the police and bring justice to this moment. You've been uh, had things stolen, and there's violence occurring, and there are crimes occurring. Well, what if in that moment the restaurant owner said, "You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to pay for everybody's meal. I'm not going to press charges against anybody. I'm just going to act. I'm just going to make sure this is all handled on my own account. I'm just going to bear the whole burden for everything that's going on there." And you would say, well, that's astonishing. Nobody would do that. How could you possibly stay in business if you're going to conduct your business in that way? And this is exactly what God is saying he's going to do. The people are complaining to him and saying, look, the world is going, it's out of control. What are you going to do? You need to come and start bringing judgment. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come again to my temple. And in fact, This plan is so mind-boggling. This plan is so unexpected. This plan is so startling. I'm going to have to send somebody ahead of time to get you ready for it. And he says, listen, I'm going to send my messenger. And he's going to prepare the way for me. Because nobody would buy this plan. God's grace provides a solution to the problem that nobody saw coming. Nobody sees this coming. All of Israel has been, they expect a Messiah, but they have defined the Messiah in very restrictive terms. Nobody had in their head this category. What if God himself came and paid for all of our rebellion himself? What if he just made it all go away by his own sacrifice from his own vast reserves of grace? Nobody could see this coming. The arrogant certainly wouldn't see it coming. In fact, we know who this forerunner is. You know who it is, right? It's John the Baptist. John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy. He is the one that was sent to prepare the way for Christ. And who are the people who were prepared for the message of this forerunner? It was those who understood they were sinners and needed God's grace. They would go out to John the Baptist at the Jordan River and they would be baptized in a baptism of repentance from sin. They would go out to John the Baptist, they would confess all their sins. Now on the shores, all the religious leaders were watching these baptisms going over and over and over again. Were the religious leaders getting baptized? No, because they don't need forgiveness. 
they're good enough in their own minds. So God puts together this uh, unbelievable plan of grace where he will bear the burdens of our sin and our rebellion himself. And he sends a forerunner to tell us, listen, I've got a plan. I'm just going to pay for it all. And nobody's going to believe it except for those whose hearts have been humbled to see their need for grace. The goodness of God is shown in his grace. Even in the midst of the Old Testament, where his people were complaining about his lack of justice, God is saying, listen, I got it. I'm coming with my grace. I'm coming with my kindness. I am going to come and make a way for all who will receive forgiveness to have it paid for. So John the Baptist uh, comes to prepare the way for Jesus because the plan was so crazy. The plan was so wild in a sense. John the Baptist is going to have to warm up the crowd. John the Baptist is going to have to prepare the way for people to hear a Savior has come to make a way for, for people to receive forgiveness of sins. Let, let's look at a couple of ways the Lord is described in Malachi chapter 3. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire. Excuse me. He is like a, a fuller's soap. He is going to cleanse his people. And who can endure it? And it's a question that we need to answer. Who can endure the coming of the Lord? Well, the answer is all who would receive his grace. All who would receive his grace and mercy as provided on the cross and his grace and mercy as empowered by his resurrection will be able to endure it because they will receive cleansing from his blood. All who would reject him, the answer is they will not be able to endure it because he is a refiner, meaning he is separating the righteous from the unrighteous. But unlike the religious who think righteousness is defined by behavior, Jesus defines righteousness by a new heart that only he can give by the power of his Holy Spirit. So he is going to come as a refiner and a cleanser, and he will refine and purify like silver and gold is refined under the heat. And look what he says. He said, he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Who are the sons of Levi? The sons of Levi were the priests and the, the temple workers and the tabernacle workers who were in charge of the worship of God in the Old Testament. And what God is saying is here, he wants to come and provide for himself priests who are holy and righteous and good. God yearns to be worshipped by those who worship him as righteous because he is Good. So where in the world is Jesus going to find priests who will worship him in righteousness? He makes them. Those who put their faith in Christ for salvation become a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All who have put their faith in Christ for salvation, the Bible tells us, are priests. Those who have direct connection with God. And so Jesus, by his blood, provides for himself a priesthood. All those who have believed in him... And we can worship him by the power of the gospel. So God provides for himself through the sacrifice of Christ a kingdom of priests. You and me, all of us who have put our faith in Christ for salvation. So the goodness of God is shown in his grace that he comes and he refines and purifies. And how do we receive that? By faith alone, trusting that what Jesus did on the cross pays for our sin. 
Now, if you want good, the goodness of God to demonstrate that you are already good, and in fact, not only are you good, you're much better than everybody around you, so God, please come and make sure everybody knows how good I am by smiting them. That individual is demonstrating a heart of accusation, saying, God, I have earned my own righteousness. And that person will be refined and will find offense at the cross. But one who says, God, I need your mercy and grace because my sin is piled up in heaps. That person is going to receive righteousness from God and cleansing. And when he comes again in the future, will have glory with Christ alone. So the goodness of God is shown in his grace. And it's defined in the starkest of terms. Meaning this. I don't know how to say this nice. Jesus comes to provide righteousness through his grace made possible through the work on the cross and the open grave. And if we say no to his grace, the simple fact is then we have chosen judgment. There is no other opportunity. We have this life and this life alone to put our faith in Christ for forgiveness. And if we say, no, thank you, I don't need it, then we have chosen judgment. And that's the refining, the separating. The separation is not who is good, it's who sees they need Jesus and who decides that they don't. And so it is in the starkest of terms, we want to ensure that we have been made pure uh, by the blood of Christ. So here's a question we might ask as those who want to worship God from our heart. Here's the question, what does God, what does God want? Does God want what we want? What God wants is a priesthood of worshipers, those who worship him from a heart that is moved by his grace. Well, what do you and I want? Well, we want God to finally recognize that we're right and that the difficulties of life should end, that we should be able to go to the grocery store without having to wear gloves and we should be able to go to our favorite restaurant and not worry about it closing down. We should be able to uh, have all the difficulties of life dealt with and certainly the, the real evil people, the people doing the really bad stuff, God should be smiting and smoting and smitting all over the place. And it drives us nuts that he doesn't. But what God is actually looking for is not for us to have the comforts of life. When we have them, that's a blessing. What he is yearning for is a priesthood of worshipers that in good times and bad times have hearts that are softened and yearn for home that yearn for the goodness and grace of God and those priests who recognize that his restraint is a grace to us and it's grace that we even have the opportunity uh, to worship him. So the goodness of God, number one, is shown in his restraint and secondly, the goodness of God is shown uh, in his grace as is seen most profoundly in uh, the work of Christ. Uh, so finally this, to be refined by Jesus... To be purified by Christ is to have God's heart put into us. And then the question we might ask ourselves is this. Well, what is God's heart like? What is What, what makes God's heart beat faster? What really energizes uh, Him? And uh, what energizes our heart is shown by what we prioritize in times of trouble. So when times of difficulty hit us, we know exactly what we yearn for because when it's taken away from us, we get really grumpy and irritable. And so we might ask, well, what moves God's heart? Well, let's look at it. Verse uh, 5 of um, 
I keep saying Exodus in my head, but Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. I'm going to read it, and then we'll just uh, touch on it real quickly uh, by way of summary. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, God says. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner or the foreigner, and and those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So the goodness of God is shown in his heart. Uh, Think about this. You walk uh, down the road and you see a house on fire. And there's two kinds of responses. There's a number of responses you might have as you see the house on fire and the fire uh, department trying to put it out. One person, this is kind of the question I would ask, I would say, boy, I really hope they're insured. I, I hope they've got good insurance on their house so they don't lose their belongings, right? Another person uh, would say this, well, I hope everyone's okay. See, those two questions reveal uh, the motivation. So I hope they're insured uh, reveals uh, a focus on the material and the, the property, whereas a person is, well, I hope they're okay, shows, a, a, well, I hope the people are okay. So when God looks at this world, which uh, I'll try to describe a little bit, maybe this is offensive to you, but God sees the dumpster fire that is our world, the effects of sin in our world. When he looks at our world and sees this uh, wreck we've made it, he wonders, I hope the weakest among them are okay. His heart yearns uh, for the weak and the exposed, and uh, those who are the lowest. We worry in times of trouble primarily about our own concerns. God looks at the trouble and he sees uh, the weak and the vulnerable. Pay attention. Look at who he says. Listen, I'm going to draw near for judgment. Each of these sins that he describes is primarily a sin against another person, and I would argue a sin against another person who is vulnerable. So I will be a swift witness against a sorcerer. What's a sorcerer do? They're setting up shop and somebody is coming to get uh, their future read or find out what they ought to do. Why are they doing that? Because they're stressed out and freaked out. And they need to know what to do. And God doesn't seem to be answering. So I'm going to go to the next person and it's going to be a sorcerer. And do you think the sorcerer is going to do that for free? Of course not. They're going to charge a steep fee. So this person is going to sign over their last paycheck to this sorcerer who's going to take advantage of their weakened position against the adulterers, especially during this time frame. He's talking about men who take advantage of women in vulnerable situations against those who swear falsely. If you lie, it means you're lying to somebody. So you're wronging somebody by telling them something that's not true, especially to take advantage of them. Three categories, he says, I I will judge those who oppress hired workers by not paying them, those who oppress widows and those who oppress the fatherless. He says, these who take advantage of the weakest or don't provide for the weakest, I will come in judgment. And he says, I will also come in judgment on those who set aside the foreigner who is seeking peace from a land that is uh, ridden with conflict. And if we, he says, I will come and, and bring judgment on those who would cast aside those who aren't like you. And finally, he says, I will do this because Those who are like this do not fear me, uh, says the Lord. All of these evils are perpetrated on others, treating others, especially the vulnerable and weak, and taking advantage of of their position. 
So what does this tell us? It tells us something about God's heart. God's heart is that he wants the vulnerable cared for. He wants the weakest cared for. How do we know this? Because Jesus died on the cross for sinners, not good people. God's heart led him to redeem sinners, not good people. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know there aren't any good people. But sinners are those who, uh, by God's grace, have uh, the humility by his spirit to recognize they need a savior. So this is God's heart. God always has the same heart. So here in the Old Testament, he's telling us he yearns for the vulnerable. Has that changed today? Has God no longer decided he no longer is concerned about the vulnerable in our culture and in our society? And the answer is, no, he doesn't change. God is still concerned about the weak and the vulnerable. So what should we say? To be refined by Christ, to be uh, have God's heart pressed into our own soul is to have our heart also yearn for the caring of the weakest among us. And trouble shows, in times of trouble, am I concerned about those who are most exposed in trouble or am I most concerned about making sure my business is handled? And the answer is, for most of us, when times get troubling, our primary concern is the small sphere of our own Lives And God looks at the trouble of our world, and he has a much broader view. And the goodness of God is shown in his heart, and what we should allow the goodness of God to do is redefine our own heart. So we might ask this question, how do I worship God in times of trouble knowing his heart? I can worship God in times of trouble by having a heart that is concerned for others, especially the most vulnerable especially the weakest, especially those who can't uh, fend for themselves. And certainly my heart should be uh, softened to make sure I am not one who takes advantage of the most uh, vulnerable. Well, you say, well, of course I do. Of course I'm concerned about the most vulnerable. So just a quick uh, thing, and I'm not talking to any of you. It's the people whose computers weren't working today, and so they're not with us this morning. Um, But what's a common phrase that we use uh, for... uh, for getting out of this. Well, you know what? They should have taken care of their own business. I understand. We all know what's going on. They were irresponsible. They were irresponsible to not get a job. They were irresponsible to not get supplies. They, uh, it's because they're lazy. They didn't do what they needed to do. See, that, that's a heart that is trying to justify my life being the small confines of my life. Thankfully, when God looks at the trouble in our lives, he doesn't come up with reasons not to extend his grace to us. So we should step back a little bit and say, how do I help the most vulnerable around me, even in times of trouble, as an act of worship to God, as a way of recognizing I want his kind of heart uh, in my heart. The goodness of God, shown in three ways. It's shown in his restraint. It's shown, I would say, primarily in his grace, in his redemptive work for us uh, through the cross. And finally, it's shown in his heart. Okay, three quick sort of application questions uh, by way of summary. Um, maybe uh, you're the kind of person that says this, um, have things gone well for you? That's, a lot of times in life, things go pretty good. And so things go well. And so what we could be tempted to think is, the reason things are going good for me is because I'm a good person. I must be doing things right. I must be dialed in as a Christian, so God's pouring out the blessing all over me. 
And we might want to be a little bit careful of assessing our lives based on the kinds of circumstances we find ourselves in. The goodness of God is shown in the grace of his restraint. That even when we're bad and we don't do things his way, you know what? Sometimes he's just that nice. So we should thank God for his blessing and be careful in humility not to take credit for it. Well, God must be blessing me because I'm good. Better way of saying it, God must be blessing me because he is just that kind. He is just that nice. Uh, second thing, uh, God's solutions to problems uh, always are beyond our understanding. So when the world was falling apart in death and sin, you and I might have come up with a million different solutions. God comes up with one that nobody would have predicted. God himself coming to provide a way for mankind to be made righteous. So we can look at any given situation we're in, whether it be the current difficulties we're facing in our culture uh, and in our world, or any of a number of situations we might face uh, in the years to come, and our comfort comes from knowing God's path, God's way is different than we could imagine, but we do know this about God's way. All things will be made new. We know where God is taking this, don't we? God is taking us to a new home, a new kingdom, a new city that will not face uh, unemployment, that will not face restaurant closures, and it will not face illness ever again. So I don't know what life looks like between now and home, but I do know this, the path from here to there is God's alone. And I should be a little bit careful in predicting what God ought to do, because God's goodness is going to be brought to bear on what life looks like between here uh, and home. And finally this, uh, God's heart, God's uh, goodness is shown in his heart, and his heart throughout the scripture is always for the lowly. And I think it's a fair question to ask ourselves, is our heart bent towards the lowly? Or is our heart bent towards the lofty? Our heart, as we are impressed by the Spirit and conformed to the image of God, we more and more over time will have our hearts bent towards the lowly. And in fact, the more Christ does work in our heart, the more we will recognize we are the lowly. And we're not actually reaching down to the lowly. We are just among them because in humility we recognize we all need the grace of God together. The goodness of God shown in his restraint, shown in his grace, and shown in his heart. And my prayer is that his heart would be our heart as we put our hope in him.